Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, Friday, Friday. Instead of monster truck, monster, monster, monster trucks, we have monster calls. Your calls to 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. I know it was tough when you guys last week about how to make your calls, but it seems like it worked. Screening calls this week was much easier. I thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, for uh, trying to work with me instead of against me on this and, and using the right format for new listeners. You can call 866-65-THINK. You'll get a voice message system. You can then leave me a message. The right way to do it is ask your question or make your comment in the first two sentences that come out of your mouth and know it before you pick up the phone. Then give me your details and points thereafter, and if you give me more than I need, it's real easy for me to just cut the end of the call off and say we don't really need to know all that, and, and that's easy. If you bury your question in the middle somewhere, it's hard to do, and I probably am going to screen your call out and it'll never get on the air. All right. Before we get to your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors today. Sponsor of the day number one is Fortress Defense Consultants. There's never been a time that training with firearms has been more important than right now. I think that if you take professional training from someone like Frank Sharp Jr. and Fortress Defense Consultants, your Second Amendment rights will go to a new level of importance in your life because you'll realize how valuable they are and what they mean. And I'm going to talk more about training for everybody in the first segment of today's show. But for now, let's just say if you have not had professional training or you haven't had it for a long time, you may want to go do it again. Check out Fortress Defense Consultants where they will teach you not only how to defend yourself, defend others, how to fight with a pistol, a carbine, a shotgun, anything you want them to train you with, they will ha they have training for it. They will also teach you how to save lives in medical response. And if you're going to have one capability, the other would be great as well. So check them out today, FortressDefense.com. Next up today, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey guy? You're going to get uh, Berkey water filtration systems, as crazy as that might sound. But, you know... I don't think I really need to tell anybody that's concerned with uh, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, disaster preparedness, how important water is. And most people don't need to be told that the Berkey system is probably the most economical lifetime system you can buy, the most bulletproof, extremely effective, and it looks great in your home. But, you know, you can get Berkeys from a lot of places. So why go to the Berkey guy? Why not go to the non-Berkey guy at the gun show who all of a sudden is in the preparedness because it's hot? Because the Berkey guy's been doing this for over 10 years. He's been doing it here with our audience for over four years, and he takes care of everybody. He's one of the uh, leading distributors for the Berkey company in, in the entire world, so you're going to get great pricing, and you're going to get great service to go along with it. And he supports the community, so we should support him back. So get your Berkey from the Berkey guy. Don't get your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy. What's up with that? Anyway, to get uh, a Berkey from the Berkey guy, go to directive21.com. That's directive and then the numbers 21.com. Best way to find Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, Frank Sharp Jr., and all of our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com first. And uh, click on their banners in the right-hand margin. You know, then you're getting somebody with my personal endorsement who has been approved by my really tough listener ad council that beats people up and, yes, does turn people down. It happens. It has happened, and I'm sure if a spot ever opens again, it will happen again. I also want to give you a kick in the butt today. Get over to 13 Skills. There are 65,000 of you here. 
There are 5,000 of you there. There is an imbalance in the equation. If you have not signed up for 13 skills yet, please do so and challenge yourself to new skills in 2013. Again, 13skills.com, 13skills.com. You don't even have to spell out 13. I made it easy for you. It's a short URL. Get on over there today. We have a huge, con as soon as we get this, this, uh, this big move we got coming, done and over with, we have a huge, huge contest coming to give away lots of really cool, and that's another way of saying really expensive stuff. And this time not to bloggers, but to just users of the site. And I promise you, I promise you, you will have a lot better chance of winning if you get over there and familiarize yourself with the site now and start building out your profile, start setting some goals, and start working on them. It's going to be awesome, but you're not going to be able to play if you're not. A, you know what I might say? I might say that the contest is only open to people that are a member as of the day I start the contest. And that means you need to get there now, 13skills.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Uh, really, guys, understand something about the Member Support Brigade. It's not like PBS television where I send you a, a $5 bag for a $100 donation. The benefits in the Member Support Brigade are worth multitudes of times more than 50 bucks a year. Um, there are two discount memberships you get for free that collectively are worth a hundred bucks. You get that on day one, so you get $150 worth of memberships, discount memberships, for 50 bucks. If that was all there was, there's discounts to 30 some odd other people, uh, and there are some ebooks in there. There's over $150 worth of free ebooks. So you're looking at $300 the day you join in value for $50. Bucks. I don't sell it that hard, but once in a while I just want to point that out so people understand it. With that, I got the housekeeping wrapped up, and I got to start out today with something. And this is going to be one of those segments that I put on YouTube. We're going to talk, before I bring your calls on, a little bit more about the Second Amendment and an idea I had while I was driving to work today. So I was driving to work today, and I was talking to folks on the, the Survival Podcast Zello channel. And uh, a little bit of Second Amendment talk, as it usually does, came up. And uh, I, I, when I got off, I started thinking about um, how people always want training. And I go to one of the videos I've made in this series in the past, and I see a guy commenting, who's actually a pro-gun guy, that says, but what if to, to, to establish a well-regulated militia, we said in order to own a gun, you had to actually go through something that would be equivalent to a, a nationally sponsored militia training, an official militia. And I thought, what part of do not, you know, what part of shall not be infringed do you not get, man? I even commented that. But then I said this, and this is interesting, and it's what led to this intro segment in today's show. And for those of you on YouTube, remember, if you'd like more, and today is a call-in show with calls from a bunch of people on a bunch of different subjects, and I don't think when I queued them up and screened them out, any of them having anything to do with guns. So it's a completely different uh, show than, uh, than maybe you're getting to think if you're just watching these segments uh, with all kinds of things about self-sufficiency, independence, and liberty. Uh, but... What I said was it would be constitutional to reestablish a national militia that would actually be a local militia with a national charter that says that everybody's got to be in the militia. That would just be a compulsory service and what we would call a civilian militia. And that basic training would allow for a national charter. We'd call it maybe the Militia Act of 2013. And I'm going to tell you how this just deep sinks 
the gun grabbers and their claim that we need training and we need to make sure that everybody's trained that has a gun and, and what have you and all these concerns that people will buy guns and not know how to use them, okay? And we'll do something unsafe with them. And I'm only half serious with this. This is only a half serious idea. I'm not making a big push to do this, but I think there actually would be some validity in it. I know some of you, when you hear something like compulsory service that bothers you, I understand why I actually share your concerns, but just hear me out. And just let's kick the idea around a little bit, and I'm going to tell you how it affects the gun grabbers at the end. See, you wouldn't have to take militia training in order to own a weapon. That would not be the case at all. And all prior service military or all people that join the military in the future would be waived from the requirement and simply attached to their local unit uh, for, uh, for use whenever necessary to help defend the country or the community, including in times of disaster and emergency uh, for like a community response team. What I'm suggesting is that it's compulsory that everybody get training. Everybody. Every single person between the age of 18 and 20, maybe you do it in two two-week intervals or three two-week intervals for six total weeks of training, and you get two years to complete your training. Uh, people of a certain age, we may grandfather in. Again, anybody with prior military service or law enforcement experience, may we just get grandfathered in. They also have basic training and understanding. Uh, and then we have some basic community musters once in a while, just to make sure everybody knows where everybody is and everybody knows what everybody's supposed to do. This would not be without precedent, and it would be very similar to the original Militia Act that was passed right after the nation was founded. By the way, here's a little bit of information about why we had a militia in this country, so that we wouldn't have large standing armies, because they were seen as a threat to the citizenry itself. That's why the citizenry were to make up the militia, and that evolved over time. And with the Militia Act of 1903, which was actually called the Dick Act by a lot of people, uh, some things changed, and we evolved out at more organized National Guard. We still made allowances for the unorganized militia. That's everybody else. That's all males between the age of 18 and 45. Whether you like it or not, you're part of the militia right now. We as uh, gun rights advocates point this out all the time. But let's look at the Second Amendment. We understand the right of the people shall not be infringed. Anybody that doesn't understand that is either stupid or claiming stupidity when they're not really that stupid. It is impossible to misinterpret shall not be infringed. That's very clear. The only way that you should lose your right to own a firearm is through the commission of a crime and the violation of the rights of another. That is consistent with constitutional and common law. If it wasn't, I couldn't put you in prison for breaking into somebody's house. Some of you thick scold folks on our side need to get that through your head. Yes, you can lose your right to possess a firearm by doing things like committing a violent felony. Then you go to prison. Now, do I think that there should be a way that once someone who's done that has done all their time, all their parole, all their probation, can reestablish their rights, and including things like the right to vote again? Yes, I do, but that's a different debate for a different time. What I'm saying right now is, what if we establish the civilian militia? And you have to go get your training. When you get out of high school, you set up your training and you go. And like I said, we can break it up to make it fit into people's lives. Three two-week intervals. And maybe everybody has to do a weekend a year or something like that. And that's all done at the local level. It's a national charter and a decentralized, locally-run situation. That keeps the power of a militia where it belongs in the hands of the people at the local level. Now, there's a lot of benefits to this. First of all, a lot of our young, entitled, little daisy children who think they're entitled to everything might learn that there's some responsibility that goes along with their dad-gone rights. 
And I think you'd see the commissions of crimes go down, not up. Because you would become responsible. As far as safety with firearms, those of us who have served in either the United States Marine Corps or the United States Army, such as I did, will tell you, you will get no better safety training in the world than at the hands of a skilled drill instructor. And I am sure there are dozens and hundreds of retired drill instructors that would love to volunteer their services to this type of an effort to ensure that our young people and our middle-aged people, because we've got to start with everybody in the beginning, are well-trained on the operation of firearms. Now, think about what this would mean to have this type of organizational structure and training in place when there's a hurricane or a tornado or a forest fire, and every citizen can be a sentinel. Okay, for those that are on the, on the audio podcast, I'm holding up one of the new Every Citizen is a Sentinel PVC patches to the camera right now. You see that? That's what I think we all need to be Sentinels. I'm calling for it voluntary. I want you to take this. And what it says, so you probably can't read it on the camera, right here, Every Citizen is Sentinel, and across the top, Long Live the Republic. Now, I'm only half serious about this idea for a new militia, a new civilian militia, under a national charter, but under national control. This is something I'm deadly serious as I hold this patch up again. The part that says, long live the republic. You know what makes this nation a republic? The right of the individual, not the rights of the collective. The day, the very day, you let them take away our Second Amendment rights, the republic falls. I'll just say, not on our watch, folks. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another YouTube video segment out of the show. Uh, if you go look up episode 1055, you can hear all the calls that came in for today's show. I thank you for watching. I thank you for your comments. And those of you who have served this nation, I thank you for your service. And with that, let's go ahead and take today's first call. Hey, Jack. Um, this is James in Tennessee here. Uh, I'd like to get your take on the practicality and also the economy of making biodiesel fuel. I don't presently own a diesel. I know you have two, or at least did. Um, and, but I am planning on getting a new vehicle soon, a car, and I'd like to look at getting a diesel. I'm specifically considering this just as, uh, from a preparation perspective, the f flexibility of having multiple ways of getting fuel for the diesel and also the longevity of the engines and the repairability of the cars. Um, so if you could... Uh, Please weigh in on this and maybe even have um, old Stephen make your own ethanol Harris maybe help us out a little bit with all of this, too. I'd love to hear his opinions on this. Thanks a bunch, and I'm looking forward to hearing some answers. Bye-bye. Well, we got to figure out what Steve's next show is. I don't know how well-versed he is in biodiesel. He seems so well-versed in so many things, uh, but I've never really heard him talk much about it, so we'll see if that's something he really wants to talk about in depth. you got really a lot of different questions built into there. Uh, one, you're saying the longevity of the engine, so I'm going to weigh in as a, as a guy that was a diesel mechanic at one point in my life that that is absolutely factual. Um, gas motors, assuming everything is equal, they're driven the same way, the same amount of time put on them, same average speed, same type of use, and same level of maintenance and care cannot hang with a diesel. They can't do it. They won't do it. The, 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 the way that the motors function mechanically is different. 
and a diesel is in some ways actually lubricating itself every time that piston goes up and down in addition to the oil that's part of the system as well. With a diesel, unlike gas, everything that you do to increase the power, and as long as you don't get stupid with it, actually increases the longevity of the motor. If you turbocharge a gas motor, you reduce its life expectancy. If you turbocharge a diesel motor, you actually increase its life expectancy. There is no comparison on reliability and longevity of a diesel versus a gas, including modern or old. It doesn't matter. Uh, there is some things you need to consider about owning a diesel. Assuming that you're going to have some work that you're going to want done by a certified mechanic at a shop versus do yourself, especially with newer vehicles, you will find it harder to find people that are that have somebody that they'll call qualified to work on it. Even at times when you're asking them to do something, it's kind of stupid that they are this way that has nothing to do with the diesel portion of the vehicle. There will be some things you want done to a vehicle that maybe work on the air conditioning system, and some shops will be like, our diesel guy's not in today, so we can't do it. So that's something you need to find a good shop in advance. And I would, you know, one is, two is one, one is none, and three is a guarantee. You might want to find about three good shops that can work on your vehicle in advance of uh, actually uh, needing them would be a good idea. It might make your decision about whether or not this is right for you a little easier, too, if you talk to a few shops to find out what's well, easy to get work done or not easy to work get done. Um, if you wanted something you could work on on your own uh, that would be highly reliable and bulletproof, and you could get a manual to tell you every single thing to do out of it, then you want an old military cut V, one of the old, uh, the old Blazers or old pickup trucks, one ton, easy to work on, anybody can do it, even me. In fact, I did for a while. Um, and if you want to do things like biodiesel, And reclaiming used motor oil and things like that, there, that's the type of motor you really want to be messing with. You don't want to get a nice new, uh, Volkswagen or a nice new Mercedes with a diesel motor in it. Ford's got some stuff coming out too. You don't want to get a vehicle like that and start playing around with these alternative fuels. You really don't. If you're talking about plain old biodiesel you go buy from a biodiesel refinery, that's fine. They'll run that all day long. If you want to start making your own biodiesel, I can't explain that in a call-in show. There is literally tons of information online about how to do it. It isn't that hard. It does require an investment in some materials, and it is time-consuming. And if you don't do it right, you can screw up your motor, but there's plenty of information of exactly how to do it right. We have several members of the audience with the old cut Vs that not only do the biodiesel thing, but the reclaiming of motor oil with a mixture into regular diesel fuel, and they get good results. We had a, uh, Tim from Old Grouch on to talk about doing just that. There's an old show you can look up with him on using cut Vs that way and how to make fuel for them. I do want to speak to the sustainability aspect of the fuel in a crisis. There are people that think, well, I'll just make my own biodiesel, and then if there's ever peak oil, I'll be fine. Well, guess what? If there's ever peak oil, what do you think everybody else is going to do? All of that waste oil that's so easy to come by, and actually it's not so easy to come by anymore. It's a lot more difficult to get places to give it to you. There's a lot of commercial interest in it now that's being added to actual biodiesel that's being made through other means as well. So you have to really work hard now to find some places where you can get a good supply of it as opposed to the past. If that's going on now, I just want people to understand that's not your solution to ride out the Mad Max apocalypse. It's really not. So those are my thoughts on it. Uh, the longevity, you definitely there. The other thing I, I need to point out, because I usually somehow, and I almost did it again, over, or overlook pointing this out, and it is important. Parts and maintenance for a diesel are more expensive than for a gas motor. 
everything's more expensive. A, a, an air filter for my F-350 pickup truck is $85. That's the cheapest, decent one you can get, $85. And it's not like your car where you pop the thing off and just pull it out and stick it in. you got to take some things apart to get the daggone thing out. It's kind of a, a pain in the ass to actually just change an air filter. And it's very important that you run a good air filter in your diesel vehicles. Just wanted to kind of point that out. If you take your diesel vehicle in to be serviced, it's going to cost more. My Jetta uses a synthetic uh, European oil uh, made for small diesel motors. An oil change on my Jetta is $80. Bucks. Um, I can do it myself and save a little bit of money, but not much because it's not like it's a lot of work for them. It's the oil. The, the, the turnaround, though, is that you know a standard gas motor, you should be changing that oil every 3,000 miles. The oil that goes in that motor and that motor itself are designed to be serviced with an oil change every 10,000 miles. So it costs three times as much, but I only do it one-third as often. So I end up in the same boat, but the point being that all of the things that you'll need to do with it, specifically things you need somebody else to do for it, require a little bit more specialized knowledge. Because we, it's not that it's any more, it's actually easier. Being a diesel mechanic is easier than being a gasoline mechanic. There's a few things that are a little bit complicated with fuel pumps and injectors and things like that. But overall, it's really easier. Uh, with fuel pump timing, you can have some things you really have to learn what you're doing. And, you know, there's, there's vapor lock as an issue that you have to learn how to deal with with bigger trucks. But honest to God, it's easy. So it's not that it's, it's complicated or, or you have to be really smart to be a diesel mechanic. It's just there's less of them. And a lot of the good ones are spending their time working for corporate interests because it pays better to go work on Peterbilt trucks that haul stuff across the country than it does to go work at, you know, Pep Boys and, and work on the few diesels that come in. So it's just a little bit harder to find them. Your Ford dealership and your Chevy dealership will always have a master diesel tech uh, if they're going to stay in business. So you always can find it. It's just going to cost more and you might have to look a little harder. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Mitch from Portland. Quick question for you. I know normally you recommend holding about 5 to 10% of gold and silver. Uh, moving forward, looks like silver especially uh, might have some tremendous upside. Do you recommend holding more than 5 to 10% uh, of your uh, wealth moving forward? Thanks a lot. Good question, and it, it'll help us maybe understand things a little bit better about the role I see for silver in your investment portfolio. Um, I look at silver more as an insurance policy for your wealth than I do as a, a, a standalone investment for the sake of gain. Okay, so when I say five to ten percent of your net wealth, and another thing that's very important that people understand what that number includes is if you have fifty thousand dollars worth of equity in your home, then that would at ten percent of your net worth, uh, you would be looking at five thousand dollars of of insurance silver against that fifty thousand dollars of house equity. So that dramatically increases for most Americans. Um, the what that ten five to ten percent number really is. You're looking at another twenty five hundred to five thousand dollars right there. It's not just how much cash and stocks do you have. It also would include everything that you consider to be intrinsically part of your net worth, all of your possessions uh, that could become uh, damaged in value. 
And that means some things like I wouldn't insure your gold with silver because they kind of serve the same purpose if you get my drift there. But 10% in silver and gold is my personal cap. I'm not comfortable personally recommending much more. If you told me you were going to do 15%, I wouldn't fault you. And if you said 20, you start to make me a little bit concerned, but I get it. When you start pushing north of 20, I think you're not understanding the purpose of the silver. Okay, the silver's to ensure the wealth. The silver is not without risk, especially in the short term. Many things can happen to us before we see a breakdown of our economy that makes our silver worth a lot more money, like a personal should hit the fan experience where all of a sudden we need money. If that experience, whatever it is, happens to coincide with a dip in a silver market and you need that that money and you're forced to exit your position On that downside of the market, you've lost, and you may be forced into that. If you have cash, you're not forced into that. The cash spends, right? And as we start to look at a deteriorating economy, if we get into some places where we really think kind of we're heading in the end game right now, there's time to move that asset over, okay, as long as we don't chase the golden goose and, and get hammered in the end like a lot of people did on the last silver run when it went up to 50 bucks. Now when you use a term like upside potential, you're moving into the world of an investment trader, right? I say investment trader so you don't think I'm calling you a trader to the country or something like that. Right? You're you're moving into the trading world when you start to think, well, it's going to go way up. That's out of my world. I don't do that. I don't function that way. That's not what, you know, that's not my thing, so to speak. Um I I just that's not That's not the world that I function in. Uh, and it's not a world that I give anything remotely resembling advice as to when and how much and where. But I will tell you that I do have an opinion, and it's just an opinion on the how. If you're looking at short-term plays because you think silver, gold, timberland, uranium, plutonium, lithium, anything's going to go up, don't buy the thing. Buy a fund that trades it or buy into the sector that benefits from it uh, with a conventional paper asset like an ETF or exchange-traded fund. That way, exiting your position is as easy as logging into your Scott Trader E-Trade account and clicking on Sell. And it will happen in seconds. And that is a much easier way to trade metals for the purpose of profit. And would I go long-term holdings that way? No, because I don't trust it. I don't trust it in a long-term holdings in a collapse scenario that all of the metal will actually be there to cover all of the paper that says there's metal behind it. But in a, in a trading scenario where you might want to exit this position in two or three months because you want to capture your profits. Again, this is nothing I don't do, but I know it's possible and I know some people know what they're doing. If that's what you're looking for, I would go with an exchange-traded fund to do that type of thing. And I will say one time real quick here, those of you that want silver in your IRAs, putting physical silver in an IRA is the dumbest thing in the world that you can do. It's the stupidest thing in the world you can do. You've taken the most anonymous money in the world and made it the most public money in the world. Silver that's in a box in your house is completely anonymous. It's yours, it's yours alone, and what you do with it is yours. Anything inside your IRA has the eye of every bureaucrat in the world looking at it. So if you want to hold silver in your IRA, gold in your IRA, timberland, your real estate, do it with a fund. That way, when The second that you decide there's something not quite right and you want to exit your position, again, you log in, you click sell, you liquidate the cash, you go into another asset, or you just hold cash. Don't try to put physical metal in your retirement accounts. It's a dumb thing to do. 
that people have sold you on because they want to sell you more silver. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Dave from Maryland. I have a question about AR-15 optics, maybe for Frank Sharp or Joe Nobody. <clears throat> um, building a, a close-quarter battle-type uh, AR-15 rifle, uh, 14.5-inch barrel with a pin suppressor, and just kind of confusing as far as which set of optics to get for it. Uh, there's there's AIM, there's, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, AIMPOINT, EOTAC, WARTAC, TRAGICON, They range in price from $300 to $1,500, a huge expense for me. I just need to get it right. Um, also like to have a, a comment on whether co-witnessing with iron sights is important. Uh, thanks so much, and um, appreciate the help on that. Well, I gave this one to Frank Sharp Jr. because we've already had a very similar question for Joe Nobody when we interviewed him, uh, and he has turned toward the realm of parallax-free, uh, low magnification down to one power um, scopes uh, with illuminated reticles. He's gotten off of the Ames points and the EOTechs and stuff like that and moved to there. That was his view. And I thought it would be good to have a, a differing view. I don't know if it'll differ. I haven't even listened to Frank's answer yet. But an answer from someone who's also deeply involved in the industry and has a tremendous amount of experience with a different perspective. Uh, so let's go ahead and hear what Frank has to say on this question. Hi, Jack. This is Frank from Fortress Defense. I'm calling in in response to Dave from Maryland's question about rifle optics. I'm going to start with the iron sights. Uh, we all need iron sights on our battle rifles. Um, there are a lot of companies out there that have the nerve now to send rifles out without any way of putting sight, iron sights on it, and that's just absolutely ridiculous. We need to have iron sights that are properly zeroed that we trust. If we are doubting our sights at any time, we will doubt our trigger press and we will doubt what we're aiming at, and that will always result in a miss. So we start with iron sights, we get them properly zeroed. When we add the optics of some sort, like a red dot, uh, I'm a huge fan of having co-witnessing iron sights, and I think it's imperative on the rifle. The red dot sights will fail. Uh, the glass breaks. They get snowed over. The batteries fail. Things happen to those all the time, and we have to have a way of following it up. And because your show is actually called Survival Podcast, we also have to assume that at some point we're going to run out of batteries. So... Have iron sights on the rifle, have them working. As far as brand of red dot, I'm a fan of the EOTech display, and I'm a fan of the Aimpoint battery life. So if those two things could ever get combined, I would be a happy camper. But at this point, as far as longevity goes, the Aimpoint is really hard to beat. Um, if you have aging eyes and you really like the display of the uh, EOTech, it's really hard to beat for just the visual side of it. Um, I don't recommend any type of magnification on optics on battle rifles. Uh, that's a, a show in and of itself, but I, I prefer just the heads-up display red dots with co-witnessing iron sights. Um, there's a company called LaRue Tactical, which will sell the mount for you uh, all as a package. You call them, Uh, tell them, or on the web you can do this, tell them what rifle you have, what your sights are, and then they will send you the package with the mount and the spacer for your red dot to get co-witnessing happening for you. All right. Um, I want you to know that Frank actually had more to say. I didn't cut him off. He His, his recording failed uh, one or two more words after that point, and I didn't really know where he was going, so I cut those one or two words off. 
Um, but I think we got a pretty good, solid answer with some advice there. I'll ask Frank if maybe he can uh, do a follow-up on this, or maybe we'll just get him on the show again as a guest, and we'll talk about ARs and the optics for them as part of that show. That might be an interesting show. Um, it might even be interesting to get him and Joe on at the same time and let them argue about it, because they do have a different take. But uh, if you notice that had a little bit of a funny sound to it, I don't know what happened to Frank's recording he sent me, but when I pulled it into my editor, it wouldn't even work. I was able to play it with Windows Media Player, and I actually had to record it um, by putting the microphone up to the speaker, which I do sometimes as a get around on certain things. So that's why that sound was there. Anyway, let's go ahead and take your next call. Hi, I want to know what happened to Dave and why he isn't on the show anymore. I'm very upset about this. Uh, who is this new guy? He's just like an imposter that comes in and takes Dave's spot. I don't even think so. I want Dave back. Okay, some people may be wondering who Dave is and what show is that she's talking about and who the imposter is. Um, I don't remember the new guy's name, but she's talking about Dave Canterbury uh, in Dual Survival and Dave no longer being part of the Dual Survivor show and um, a lot of other stuff going on there. And uh, I've been asked about this a lot, uh, and I'll explain for those that aren't aware uh, what I'm talking about as I go through this. But I've been asked a lot about an issue with uh, Dave Canterbury's uh, record, his past record, his military record, and whether or not he embellished his resume as part of his application process with Dual Survivor. Uh, I have known for some time that that was an issue. It was something that I was aware of, exactly what things were embellished and what weren't and what was going on. I wasn't completely sure, and I've been asked a lot over the last year about it because, as you guys know, Dave is a personal friend of mine. And uh, basically, until now, I have kept my mouth shut about it because he is my friend. I do respect him. I respect him every bit as much today as I did. In fact, I would tell you I respect him more today uh, than I did in the past because of what he did. He came out with a YouTube video called Discussing DS, and DS meaning Dual Survivor. And he said, there's accusations that I embellished my, my resume, specifically my military service record, uh, to get uh, on the Dual Survivor show. And I did do it. He said he did it. He said, I apologize for it, and I'm apologizing to anybody that I've hurt uh, by doing so. I never intended to hurt anybody. You can listen to it him, him say it himself. Um, I feel this way. He didn't do any, and I, I have served in the military, and apparently one of the things he embellished was airborne service, which I did, and he didn't do, and I don't feel slighted in any way. I, I will tell you that I don't think there's any guy that ever played high school football that didn't claim at least one touchdown he never made. We all make mistakes. We all do dumb things, and I think Dave is a really super nice guy that was a little bit naive as to how the entertainment industry worked, and he wanted to get his shot really bad, and he said a few things that weren't true. He also said a lot of other things that were true, uh, the man's skills are exceptional. And my personal feeling is that Discovery Channel couldn't give a flying crap about whether or not Dave's military record was accurately reflected. I, my personal opinion is that Cody Lundeen on that show often comes out looking subpar to Dave. I really believe that because he does some dumb shit like going around in a jungle with no shoes on. Uh, but Cody's a very accomplished survivalist themselves, but the two of them side by side. And I think Discovery's entire hope from the very beginning, because they're all touchy-feely nature -y, would be that the Bush hippie would come out looking better than the military guy. This new guy that they have, 
They've seemed to have made a point. They have gone out and got a genuine special ops warrior. I do not, I don't remember his name, but I watched the first kind of introduction show about who this guy is. I do not doubt this man's skills in a military operation for a New York second. I think he's an American hero. I think he is an exceptional soldier. And I think if you are going to be in a firefight, he's a guy you want with you every single time. I don't think he knows his ass from a hole in the ground about wilderness survival, which is 99% of the show. I think that's by purpose. Okay, Military survival training, when you get into jungle survival training and things like that, there's not a lot of shelter building. That's a very short-term thing. It's get your ass out of the enemy territory and get your mission done and get home. That's, that's, that's it. That's the training. It's not this long-term type thing that you know we look at with bushcrafting. I honestly think that we probably have a lot of 16, 17-year-old kids out there who've been watching shows like this and Les Stroud's old show and doing YouTube videos and, and practicing their skills in their own backyard, maybe being a Boy Scout and what have you, that would probably be better in a wilderness survival scenario than this new guy. And I think that's by design. I'm sure he'll get better, and that actually might make the show pretty good. Um, I'm not going to have a boycott dual survivor because they kicked my buddy off thing. And I, and I think that the caller needs to understand something about the entertainment industry. He just came in and took Dave's spot. That's how it works. That's how it works. I think that the resume issue was just an excuse for Discovery to do what they wanted to do anyway. I don't even know if that was, you know, really, Uh, what was done? Basically, Dave had a two-year contract. At the end of his contract, they chose not to extend it. That's the entertainment industry. People get cut off TV shows all the time. Um, I'm sure it was hurtful to Dave, but I also know he's taken some responsibility for it. I will tell you this. I've seen in some forums and things like that, people just talking trash about this man. Like he is some kind of like you know lower than low. You know the people that do that? Small human beings. Small human beings do things like that. Jealous, little, jealous, envious little pricks are the people that just want to tear a person down. Because I'll tell you this, if I was going out into the wilderness tomorrow and I wanted somebody at my side that would help me get back home and know I was going to get back home, it would be Dave Canterbury. And I would take him before any of these people that they have on any of these shows Not just because of the personal trust, but because of the results I've seen of his efforts. And I really know that the guy knows what he's doing. He'll always be a friend. I've told him many times he's welcome back on the show anytime. I haven't heard a lot back in regards to that. It just kind of gets ignored in our communications. I don't know if it's been partly that he's concerned um, about this new revelation, or especially before he came out and made these statements himself. But I'll tell you this, Dave, if you're listening, you always have a friend in the survival podcast community, and I got you back. I got you six any day, brother. And with that, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Sandy from San Pablo, California. My question is about improving the security of our suburban home. We want to replace the front door and screen door to the entrance of our home. We would also like to make our electric garage door and garage side door more secure. I've seen a couple of videos on YouTube demonstrating deadbolts for the garage door. Are these sufficient? We have two sliding glass doors. Is a large dowel placed in the track on the floor a good idea? Do you have any suggestions about any excuse me, do you have any suggestions about the type of doors or the best security features that we should look for or consider before making these purchases slash enhancements? 
We do have a monitored security system in place and would be interested in any weaknesses or common failures that we should be aware of. Thanks so much for all you do, and thanks for your help. I do have some suggestions, and some of them cost money, and some of them just take setting up, um, and some of them require maybe a lifestyle adjustment. Uh, number one is I absolutely recommend uh, that people deeply consider getting a dog, and you don't have to have a giant horse, 140-pound German Shepherd Max like I have. I mean, you can get a little yappy Pomeranian. Those little dogs are freaking psychopaths when they hear anything outside. They're very defensive. Criminals rely on people not knowing they're there 90% of the time. The, the criminal that breaks in to attack a person head-on is, is the exception to the rule. Most criminals that break in, the, the majority are trying to get some stuff and run away. And then there's the complete vehement scum that need a permanent dirt nap that mean to do harm to the individuals in the house. And I have news for anybody that breaks into houses for a living. If you break into my house, I'm assuming you're the 10%, because I don't have time to play and risk my life to find out whether you are or not, and you will get a dirt nap in the Spirico household. So that's my next recommendation, is that the adults in your home and children that are old enough receive proper firearms training and that there are firearms present to defend the home if you get that type of a burden. I'm also going to recommend that you want to create the illusion that you're home, even when you're not. Um, I've heard of a product called Fake TV. I thought it was a gimmick. Why not just leave your TV on? Well, you're, you're wearing out your TV. Uh, it, it's also the case that many TVs and many service providers like Dish Networks, for instance, when this TV's been on for a long time, well, you know, it shuts itself off. It just goes to a dark screen. These things are about 35 bucks or something like that. We just picked a couple up. They, you, you put it on and go outside your house, and you would swear to God someone's in there watching TV. They come with a timer that will run them for seven hours after dusk, or you can just turn them on and put them on a conventional timer if you want them to run all night long. Uh, this will help when you're not home to create the illusion that you are home. The next thing we're going to do is look at, well, how is entry gained into a home? Um, You know, the, the classic thing that's done in a lot of really dangerous areas is to put bars on the windows because the windows are one of your two primary entry points. Well, the problem with putting bars on a window is it starts to make your home look like, well, it, it starts to make your home look like a prison, and we don't want that. And while you can open a window and get out if you do what I'm going to recommend, if you have security bars, then maybe you can't exit your window. and You don't want to hold yourself inside your house. Okay, so 3M and several other companies make a security film that when you put it on a window, it is almost impossible to break that window out. Um, certainly the thief that comes up and figures he's just going to knock the window out, reach in and open the door and what have you, is, uh, is going to be deterred because you're going to have to make a lot of noise. It's a very tough film. It's something I recommend you add to your windows. It's not cheap. But if you're really concerned about security, you may want to do it. And it has some properties that help improve your energy efficiency, so it has a pretty decent payback. It's also the case that we get a little bit, we get a little stupid from time to time as preppers, and we think if we're going to do something, we're going to do it all the way. Well, that window film, you may not, if you have a two-story house, you may just not put it on your upstairs windows. So that reduces how many windows you need to put it on. You may decide that your most primary concern is maybe your front window, your big windows downstairs, and if you have a small window next to your door, that would generally be the way a thief would bust that window, stick their hand in, just open the door and walk in, then maybe you just treat those windows. right? So you have to do everything within your budget and all, but I think it's a great product. I think it works really well. 
The other primary access point people get in, of course, is the door. There is a product called the Door Sentinel. Um, it's at, I think the website's mysafedoor.com. It works. There's other products like it, but I know that one works. It's a good product, and it makes it much more difficult for your door to be kicked in. As far as a sliding glass door and putting a dowel in the bottom, that's a great additional method of locking that door to keep people out. It's low-tech, but it works. But that big, giant glass sliding glass door you're talking about, they look beautiful, but that's an awful lot of glass that somebody with a cinder block can use to walk straight in. Um, so that might be a place to really consider that uh, security film. Assuming that you don't carry your gun at all times, there's at some point that you're in your nightclothes or whatever and your gun's put away, it's possible or that you might have someone try to force their way into a door and uh, you don't really want to kill them. Maybe it's just somebody you want to go away. It's not a, a situation that immediately calls for lethal force. It's a good idea to have pepper spray, lots of it, big cans, cans that can coat a person's face to where if it was just sticky goo and it wasn't burning them, they still have trouble seeing. You get what I'm saying? Not these little key ring ones like we carry around in our pockets, big old giant can. We have at several locations in our, our home, at all times, cans of Cold Steel Inferno pepper spray. We get two-sided Velcro, and we have, for instance, right inside our front door, there's a window. And right behind the drapes on that window, there is a large can of Cold Steel Inferno. This is so my wife, who may not actually be willing to pull the trigger even when she needs to, has an option. I know she'll use. And if someone happens to show up at the house when I'm not there or I'm out back hunting or something like that, that she can give them a face full and get the door closed and at least have a fighting chance. And we have underneath some countertops, behind some bedposts, where I told you on the window, underneath the kitchen table. We literally have cans of this crap all over the place because you don't get to pick where you're at when you need something. This is another big thing to understand. You know your home better than any criminal will. You know where every piece of furniture is. You know where every closet is. Put things in places that can be used as improvised weapons and occasionally walk around your house up your situational awareness and go, yeah, there's a baseball bat in my in my son's closet simply because he plays baseball. Okay, that's that's a weapon of defense at, at the time that it's needed. There's you know what's in your shed, what's in your garage. Um, these are all important things for you to know at all times. Always lock your doors. I used to be, you know, I grew up in a place where no one locked their doors in Pennsylvania, and still don't. I tell my dad all the time, dude, lock your door. Um, and it, 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 there's a mentality in some of these small towns, especially in some of these small little northeastern hamlets and stuff like I'm talking about. Um, and my thought always was, I'm home. If you want to break in my house when I'm home, go ahead. I'll put you, I'll put you in the dirt nap society for the rest of your life, you know. And then I started to hear about the best cat burglars in the world break into your house while you're there. What they do, this is a standard technique, standard, it's like cat burglar school I'm giving you here, but the information's out there. They wait until somebody's home, and, and they actually prefer that the husband and wife both be home. They wait and they watch and they case the place, until, and they figure out where your master bedroom is, where the front door is, and where both of you are. And these guys generally, these are pros. They don't want to hurt anybody. They don't even want anybody to know they were there. They go straight to the master bedroom because that's where money, jewelry, and high-dollar items that are small and easy to carry are held. They lock the door. They lock the door. They steal your stuff. They go out your window. 
one of the homeowners comes to the door and tries to open it. The one guy that was on a talk show that did this for, and this guy robbed the Kellogg family, okay, like Kellogg cereals, a cereals, cereal. This guy was upper end pro. He said every single time, whoever finds it blames the other spouse. And while they're fighting about who locked the door, he has time to go out the window. He tried to leave everything the way that it was. So two days later, when you open your jewelry box, ladies, to pull out those earrings that you inherited from your mother is when you realize they're gone. So not just from a safety standpoint, but just from a standpoint of property protection, if a door has a lock, the only time it's unlocked is when I'm going through it. A last note on safety. I have seen people who put deadbolt locks in that require a key from the inside and the outside. This is generally to prevent what I said about breaking a window, reaching in, and unlocking the deadbolt. Don't do that. I, I, I cannot in good conscience recommend that you have a door in your home lockable from the inside. It could cost somebody their life in a fire or a storm event. You need to be able to get out of your doors and anybody in your home needs to be... Whatever you put in as a security apparatus that holds a door closed, you make damn sure that everybody in that home old enough to walk knows how it works and can work it. Or don't put it in. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. My father-in-law insists on a lock like this and it scares the hell out of me for him. Um, especially he's getting older and misplacing things like the dadgone key. Um... That, that I, I just that's a public service announcement. Don't do that. Good question. Let's take another one. Hey Jack, this is Bill in the Midwest, and I've got a question, probably for Chef Keith Snow. I've been listening to him frequently on your show lately, and I've got a friend who eats a lot of canned soup, which of course is full of sodium um, and any other preservative you can name. And for Christmas, I was thinking I might just make a lot of fresh soup um, with good fresh garden-grown vegetables and get out the pressure canner and can up several cases of soup for him to um, eat on over the next several months. And I thought Keith Snow might have some ideas or some tips, tricks, or something I should know about um, pressure canning soups. Um, I have pressure canned soups before to fine effect, um, but any advice or commentary would definitely be appreciated. Hey, thank you for your time. Keep up the good work. Bye. Actually, Keith Snow's been moving to Montana, and he had a backlog. And uh, we actually have a second question for him. It took him a couple weeks to get both of these done. He did them together. So what I'm going to do before I play Keith's answer to this question, I'm going to go ahead and play the second question, and then I'll play Keith's response to both of them. Jack, this is Brian from Kansas. I was calling with a question for Chef Keith Snow. I was wondering what he would recommend for good recipes to use up a lot of Jerusalem artichokes and uh, what kind of uh, spices and herbs would be good to use with it and what kind of meats would be good to use. Uh, thank you for the show. I much appreciate it. Listen every day. Hey, Chef Keith Snow here. wanted to answer Brian in Kansas, his question regarding sunchokes. Um, what am I doing with all these sunchokes? People don't realize how prolific a crop uh, sunchokes or commonly referred to Jerusalem artichokes. They can be very prolific, kind of like uh, bamboo in a way. You plant these things underground or ginger, and they're tubers, but they spread. <clears throat> so they have... Um, um, 
you know, rhizomes, I believe they're called, that tend to spread underground. So one plant turns into many. Now, survivalists love the crop because it doesn't look uh, more than, you know, when it's in bloom, it kind of looks like sunflowers, very pretty to add to the garden. Uh, when they're not in bloom, look like giant weeds, actually. So um, I don't know how pretty they are. They're, they're great when they're in bloom, but uh, I don't know if you'd want to plant these things in your sort of flower beds because they can take over and be a little bit invasive, and they don't really look great except when they're in bloom. But as a survival food, they can produce loads and loads of food. And if anyone happens to uh, want to come by your garden and raid it, which it seems a lot of survival folks are worried about people raiding their place, um, I certainly don't think it's going to come to... You know, maybe, I'm sure it'll happen once or twice, but I don't think it's going to be too much of a worry that people come raiding your garden. But um, if they do, they're not going to really, unless they know what they're looking for, uh, 9 out of 10 folks, this is a crop that most people have no idea what it is, have never eaten it before. You don't really see it on, uh, it's not on any restaurant menus unless they're sort of organic, vegetarian type places. So uh, the food grows underground. Nobody knows what it is. Excellent survival food. Delicious. As far as glycemic response, for people that have trouble, you know, diabetics and whatnot, uh, folks watching their weight, and, you know, potatoes tend to spike your insulin a bit, the uh, Jerusalem artichoke is pretty uh, low uh, on the glycemic index, so it doesn't spike your insulin like that. Very delicious to eat, and they're treated very similarly to potatoes. Um, you could almost just consider it a type of potato. Uh, you've got to peel them, of course, but you can, uh, once they're peeled, you know, some recipes for these things. How, how about, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a meat eater, why not make corned beef hash out of them? Corned beef hash is a delicious thing, particularly when you make it yourself. What is it? You know, chopped up corned beef, onions, potatoes, basically. Um, it's not really much more than that, but instead of using potatoes, Jerusalem artichokes. What about mashed potatoes or mashed Jerusalem artichokes? You can treat them almost identically. Just peel them, dice them up, steam them or boil them. And then you can mix in a little butter, cream, salt, and pepper. Uh, another good thing is to add some cauliflower to the mix, particularly those of us. Um, I know Jack is doing a little paleo thing, cut down on the carbs. There's a lot less of Jack to love these days. Uh, he's shrunk down quite a bit. And, you know, the same for this guy. I, I'm not a heavy person. In general, um, but 10 pounds on me looks pretty bad. So uh, I've been watching my carbs quite a bit, do, doing a lot more of a paleo diet, lots and lots of vegetables, um, lean meats, stuff like that. So uh, taking these sunchokes, mixing them in with some cauliflower, mashing it up, cream, salt, pepper, butter, wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, there's other ways you can cook with them. You can peel them, slice them up, and toss them in salads. There's another vegetable called jicama, J-I-C-A-M-A. It's popular in Latin kitchens, kind of like a cross between a potato and an apple. Uh, wonderful in uh, shredded in salads, lime juice, tomatoes, jalapenos, jicama. Excellent stuff. Mix it in with mangoes. You can treat these sunchokes like that. You can peel them, shred them, put them in salads, slice them up. Um, lots of ways to use these, and, you know, this is a common problem. People plant things, particularly for the survival type um, movement, and then they're like, ah, I don't know how to cook with this stuff. So practicing all these different methods is going to be a great way to kind of uh, get your knowledge on these sunchokes um, to be greater. But these are very healthful. Uh, they taste delicious, very versatile. So just think potato 
and um, look on the on the internet. Lots of great recipes for them. Um, another one that's really nice is to take these. What I like to do is um, take them and shred them up in a cast iron skillet. A little bit of minced onion, um, quite a bit of butter on very low heat, and put your um, drained, you want to squeeze them out after you shred them, squeeze out as much liquid as you can, put them in a cast iron skillet and just uh, really get them good and golden brown, almost like a dish called roasty, which is a sort of a Swiss type dish, R-O-I-S-T-I, I believe it's spelled, uh, basically like hash brown potatoes, but a little bit of onion in there, terrific stuff. Um, also, a frittata, take some uh, sunchokes, peel them. Dice them up into about a sixteenth of an inch, pan roast them until you get a little bit of color on them, a little bit of onion, a little bit of garlic, and then you can toss them in in a um, oven-proof plate or something with eggs and cheese and make a frittata. So lots of ways to use those, Brian. Congratulations for planting them. Wanted to answer uh, Bill's question about canning soups. Bill's uh, friend is the is the salty soup guy, and uh, you'd be amazed at the amount of salt that's in some of these canned soups. And I don't know. I remember as a kid, occasionally we would have some uh, canned, and it was always the uh, Campbell's tomato soup with a grilled cheese. Um, when it was cold outside, I can remember coming in from playing ice hockey on the pond or throwing snowballs at cars or the things that we used to do in the winter and coming in and having uh, good grilled cheese with a little cream of tomato soup. That was about the only canned soup I can remember. Um, since then, my mom, uh, has been just, uh, she's the soup Nazi, always make, she has to have soup every day. And I think that's why she's so healthy. At uh, 85 years of age. But, Bill, congratulations for giving a hoot, um, caring about your friend enough to can soup for him. Wow, I could I could use you as a friend, and any, everybody could use people that are willing to um, produce healthy food for him. But, yes, uh, soups are loaded with salt. I cannot um, advise strong enough for people to learn how to make their own soup and get away from canned stuff. Now, as, as far as canning soup, um, there, when people say canning, uh, of course, we're thinking about, you know, what we do in the summer with vegetables. We can them. But when you're doing soup, which tends to have things like meat and vegetables and all that or things that are low in acid, you're actually doing what's called retort, um, retort canning. And when you go into a soup factory where they make canned soup, and we're talking about, you know, the tin canned soup, they make soup, they'll cook the soup. Put it into the cans. The lid goes on, and then um, it is at that point not shelf stable. They load it onto giant rolling racks, and then they've got what essentially looks like submarines, big long pressure tanks. The door opens up, and it's it comes with the the big spinning iron wheel. You spin that wheel, you pull the big door open. These racks roll in there. It's closed, spun shut, and then the pressure is put to it. Steam pressure. And when you're pressure canning soup, that's what you're doing. You're using steam pressure because when you get over 212 degrees, um, the only way to do it is under pressure. You can boil something uh, on the hottest stove known to man. It's not going to get higher than 212 degrees um, unless it's something like sugar, and then it can go you know, up over 300 degrees. But things that are basically liquid-based, you're not going to get it much hotter than 212. So... In order to make it shelf-stable, it needs to be processed or canned using steam pressure, and this is basically called retorting. Um, but as far as tips, 
I think the one thing you want to make sure, and this is where people go wrong, is they will um, make soup up, like, and they won't really cook it the whole way. You need to, when you're canning foods, they need to be cooked foods. You can't um, take a soup, throw vegetables and broth in there, and then put it into the into your jars and then pressure can it because that's not it's not going to be right that way you want to make sure it's properly prepared like you were going to eat it right then and there and then you go about the business of preserving it now a mistake that's commonly made people make up a batch of soup uh let's just say it's ah, i don't know barley vegetable they make up some barley vegetable soup and then they get the idea you know what let's let's add some rice to it or some dry pasta they add the dry pasta and then they process it and then it's basically a solid mass when they're done pasta grains anything like that is going to absorb a ton of water and i can tell you this right now because um we pressure pressure cooked we pressure cooked some soup just the other day while my mom was in town and it was a minestrone soup and uh she thought it would be neat to have some uh ditalini in it ditalini are the uh, little teeny um, pastas you often see in minestrone. So the soup was cooked. Uh, we opened it up. My mom put in about a cup of ditalini and then kept cooking it. And when we opened the pot up, there was no liquid left. So this is a, a common mistake. Pasta and rice and grains, they soak up a lot of liquid. So you want to be careful with that. Make sure your soups are fully cooked and ready to go like you would eat them, then you go about the business of pressure canning them. Now, when you're pressure canning soups, uh, you want to avoid things. You, you can do things with cream and cheese, but I don't recommend it. It tends to uh, really complicate things. But you have to be careful about altitude. So let's just say there's two types of pressure canners. You've got dial gauge canners, which have like a pressure dial. Um, and then you've got also weighted gauge canners where you put a weight on there and it'll, it'll jiggle. Some canners have both. Like I've got an all American pressure canner. Um, and they're made by a company called WAFCO, Wisconsin Aluminum Foundry Company, something like that. You can find all American pressure canners on, um, on Amazon. Excellent quality products. Those have both. They've got a, you know, a readout gauge and they also have a weighted, uh, gauge on there. Um, but you want to pay attention to the altitude. For instance, between one to 2,000 feet above sea level, let's say you're using a weighted gauge canner, 15 pounds. Um, but it would only be 11 pounds if you're using a dial gauge canner. And then it goes up from there with a dial gauge canner. It'll go up, you know, two to 4,000 feet. You got to add a pound, four to 6,000. You got to add a couple more pounds. So you want to check altitude chart for canning soups. If you, um, just Google altitude chart for canning soups. You'll come up with several sources. Um, but let's just say you're making a, you know, a good vegetable soup of some type. You're going to want to process that thing for probably 60 minutes at least, maybe even more if you're at a little bit of altitude. And it also depends, are you doing pints or quarts? Uh, pints are usually at least 60 minutes. Quarts, you probably want to go 75 minutes. But um, I suggest that you think when you're, you're making soups like this as gifts and all that, think with the seasons. Um, you don't want to give somebody a bunch all hearty type soups. What about when it's in the summer? They're going to want to have a beef stew. 
soup in the summer or would they rather have, you know, a, a garden vegetable soup? So take in consideration the seasons. You know, if it's the fall, maybe a little butternut squash soup would be terrific. If it's the spring, what about an asparagus soup? So try to, um, Think about some seasonality because these things are designed to last. So if they if they're designed to last, that means people could be uh, wanting to use them in all seasons, and you don't want to reach in um, for you know a winter-based soup in the summer or uh, vice versa. You know, in in the winter, it's nice to have that hearty soup rather than the sort of extra brothy soup that you would have in the summer. So keep that in mind. Make sure you're paying attention to your altitude charts. Um, and definitely make sure your soups are fully cooked and ready to go. Aside from that, I think you're already on the right track, man. And I gotta, I gotta congratulate you for um, pressure canning soup. This is something that I really think more people need to start doing. Um, you talk about a survival skill. I just actually completed a video. It's in post production right now for the good folks over at Tatler Reusable Canning Lids, which I highly recommend. You can check those out at reusablecanninglids.com. Uh, we put together a video for them. Uh, they're going to be, I don't know, giving it away at some point. And basically the title was something like cooking for canning. So instead of just canning produce, which most people, they think of canning, let's can green beans, let's can tomatoes, pickles, beets, stuff like that. They don't think of it as a way to can great culinary things like you're talking about, soup. What about salsa? Uh, one of the things I did in that video is I made a tomatillo or a, a green salsa verde um, and that's wonderful canned. And you, you can make, you know, 20 pints of that in a heartbeat and put it in your pantry. And then you don't have to go and eat that garbage called Tostito salsa. So think of canning as a way to preserve wonderful culinary things, some jam, some jelly, salsa, soup, beef stew. I made a red wine French beef stew. And I actually had a couple of quarts of it uh, that I brought back from the studio kitchen in Florida where we filmed it. And uh, they didn't make it in the pantry. They went right in the refrigerator and have been eaten up. Delicious. So you can uh, easily get a big pot. You can make five gallons of tremendous sort of French beef stew with red wine and earthy, woody herbs like thyme and rosemary, some turnips and carrots, a lot of garlic, wonderful grass-fed local beef, some homemade beef stock. You make a big old pot of that, you might wind up with... 15 quarts that you can put right into your pantry. And that is wonderful stuff for a cold night. Uh, really increases your uh, food independence. So uh, congratulations on already canning soup. Keep up the good work. And I want to encourage all you uh, survival podcasters out there to check out the uh, Harvest Eating podcast. You can find that on harvesteating.com. It's also in iTunes. And uh, I appreciate you guys listening. Keep up the great work, Jack. Thanks, man. Hi, Jack. This is Andrew calling from West Michigan, and I had a question um, regarding a topic you covered in episode 1050 on the listener calls. Um, you were talking about using newspaper as a barrier, and you said four inches or, you know, a couple of good metro, you know, major city Sunday papers. Um, I was wondering, is it possible to put too much of that down? You know, I'm not talking a foot, but, you know, you get a little carried away, or is four inches, you know, your magic number, or... Is that a pretty set number of inches you want to go with? Um, thanks for answering our question. Uh, keep up the great work. Love the show. Bye. I, I think we're getting some confusion there in the four inches. The, a four-inch specification that I was giving you is for the layer of mulch 
on top of the, the newspaper. I'm not saying four inches of newspaper. What I'm saying is a Sunday edition of a typical large metropolitan newspaper. They've, that's gotten a little smaller lately as newspapers are dying, but you, you get the general idea. And that's not at all closed up. That's like opened up. You know, newspapers generally open up one and then two ways, so they're big. So a Sunday edition thick opened up that four way. You're ending up with a good half inch to a, somewhere between a quarter and a half inch, multiple layers of paper soaked down, nice and wet, um, and then a good at minimum four inches, six to eight inches is even better of mulch on top of that, and you're going to get very good results, and that newspaper is going to break down. Can you put too much? I would imagine at some point you might get to a point of diminishing returns. If you did double what I suggested, I don't think it would hurt anything. But you're using a lot more material than you need, and that means you need to, to, to uh, source more material. So just keeping it simple again, for those of you who want to do newspaper mulching, Good thick layer. And, you know, don't obsess about what is a Sunday edition thick. And, by the way, that spec comes from Jeff Lott, and that's where I've gotten that spec from. And, you know, my way I used to do it was basically, you know, about four or five sheets. And when I heard him say that, I'm like, that's why I'm not getting, that's why a lot of people aren't getting the results they're looking for. It's not thick enough. So just, you know, a good thickness. It's not a precision deal here. And I've even done, for instance, and this is where I've gotten my best results, a nice thick layer of newspaper, about a half inch of compost, or an inch of compost even, or even two inches of compost. I don't even know how much. I'd say, looking at my, thinking about it now, probably an inch and a half. And then about four to six inches of mulch on top of that. Pull your mulch, mulch back and plant into that compost. The roots will penetrate the wet newspaper. Plants can, plants can handle that all day long, and you'll get really great results with your layering mulch if you take that approach to establishing new gardens or cleaning up ones that have overgrown with weeds. This will take them down a lot. And again, if you have an overgrown garden, even if you're going to do this, it's still a good idea to get as much of the weed material uh, uprooted as you can. If you have chickens, put them over it for a day. Throw a little bit of feed in there to get them encouraged and started You know, set them in a tr chicken tractor, put them in a makeshift chicken pen for a day or two, let them hit that ground for you, and they'll do a better job with a whole lot less effort than you'll ever have to put into it. Good question. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Uh, Jeremy in Erie, Pennsylvania again. Um, I was just calling to see if you had seen anything about the Arrow Garden. Uh, I got one for Christmas. I think it's a good way to get into hydroponics. Um, It's really neat, and uh, it's all set up for you with grow lights and everything. You can even buy things to start your seeds and, and uh, do things like that. So I wanted to get your opinion on it and see what you thought about it. Thanks. Well, uh, I, I'm not super familiar with them, but I kind of look at them more as a novelty thing than anything with serious production. Just because the expense for the size, you know, of how much one of these things will grow, uh, like I'm looking at the Arrow Garden Extra, which maybe you could grow a couple tomato plants in, is $149. And if you want to do hydroponics or aquaponics or anything like that, there's you can do an awful lot with a couple hundred dollars of putting a system together. 
But if you have one and it works and you, it lets you grow stuff, especially, I mean, I think maybe the best use of these things, and I've seen them, I think it's Sharper Image maybe was one place I saw one, and I thought, what a great idea, because it would look good in a kitchen with a whole bunch of fresh herbs, and simply being able to, to just reach across the counter and pluck fresh herbs when you're cooking, I think that might be the, the best overall use for it. So, I mean, it's a cool gift. If somebody gave me one, I wouldn't be like, oh, man, I wish you would have got me something else. I'd be like, thank you, that's very cool. And that's that's probably how I would personally use it. I just don't see it as something that's viable in its current form for large-scale production. I think that it could be evolved into that, but that's not what it is now. It's, it's kind of a small production novelty thing. But it's also a way that those of you that live in apartments that go, I don't even have a balcony, I don't even have a patio, you know, at least you could bring fresh herbs into your home. You know, and a, a couple of these you could produce, you know, some fresh herbs and maybe if, you know, a, 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 a hot pet, one or two good, really unique varieties of hot peppers. And since we talked about yesterday, a, per, a pepper is a perfect flower and largely self-fertile, you'll get production indoors without having to worry about pollinators. So, you know, maybe if you had one with a bunch of herbs in it and one with maybe three different types of uh, unique hot peppers there, that can do a lot to enhance your cooking. You can make pepper, you know, dehydrate your peppers, put them in a coffee grinder, and make pepper powder. That's a great little project to do. Uh, you can put peppers in vinegar and make hot pepper vinegar or oil and do the same thing. They have a lot of utility when you get into the hot pepper world versus I, I don't think I would grow sweet peppers there. I think that it would just, it's, it's just counterproductive. You aren't going to get that much production. But I think they're cool, and uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Joe from Kansas, uh, soon to be Joe from North Dakota. Uh, my question for you is about community service. I'm uh, in the military 10 years, and I'm about to get out, but I still want to serve my country just within its borders. I'm moving to a small town, and I wanted to know what you thought about how I can still serve my country, like uh, disaster response team or volunteer fire department. What's a good way to get out there and just help my fellow Americans? Thank you so much for the show, and uh, keep doing what you do. You're awesome. Take care. Yeah, um, let, let's look at this in two different ways here. Um, the, the greatest service in America is generally done by people who just take an action and do something good for the right reason. People that just decide, I'm going to put in a community garden whether anybody likes it or not, and they just break the rules and go do it uh, and get away with it, and all of a sudden the community shows up behind them. What I'm saying is it doesn't always have to be part of a group or an organization. I'll get to that as the second part. I would just say, though, initially just expand your mind as to what service means. If you're helping your fellow citizens, you're, you're serving your country and you're serving your fellow citizens. That's one great way to be a sentinel. Remember, uh, not every citizen can be a soldier, but every citizen can be a sentinel. A sentinel is defined as one who stands watch, and one who stands watch over their fellow man by making sure that they can help them is, is actually contributing service. There, there is no greater service than that. When you help your fellow citizen uh, or improve the lives of your fellow citizens and make your country a better place through individual action, there is no higher service because uh, any of the group-oriented services, for all the good that it does, it doesn't require 100% individual commitment. When people do things on their own, there's no structure there for them. They just go and they care enough to do. 
and they care enough to act. And it's, to me, the highest level of service. And there are some great examples of that. We hear stories all the time of people doing things like this. Um, the next thing on organizations that you can serve, volunteer firefighters is a great one, and it's a great way to meet people uh, that are probably at least open to disaster response preparedness and things like that. The disaster response team is actually going to be called Citizens Assisting Citizens, and we are well into the development of that. We have a training outline developed. That will be coming soon where we'll have a website where you can go to and you'll be instructed as to where go to take initial training. All of it's available online and free for the initial entry training for uh, the, the citizens assisting citizens response teams. And that's something we'll roll out very, very soon. We have a board of directors uh, elected. I'm serving as a director on the board, along with the other folks that are what we're calling the Honcho team. Uh, there's uh, about seven members of the board. I need to put together a formalized announcement for that. We have regularly scheduled calls. Uh, they are basically in charge. I'm there as a voting director to advise, and the public speaking, public mouthpiece of the group uh, is going to be my role. I am not going to run it. Uh, I am not qualified to run it. The people that we have doing that are crack, and I just wanted to give you guys, crack guys, man, and I wanted to give you an update on the pro. There is progress there. That is that is coming soon to a theater near you. Um, but when it comes to other voluntary things, some may or may not work for you. Uh, I inquired about being a volunteer sheriff, uh, and I thought that would be like, you know, maybe you go out two nights a month or something like that uh, with an officer as an assister or something like that, and primarily existing in a reserve where when there was a big storm or something, they would call you in. Um, that's not how the program works here. Um, you go to the academy like uh, a, a, any officer, which I thought that would be kind of cool. Uh, but then you, you, you basically have a 40-hour a, a month job. You basically work one week a month the way that any other paid officer would, and you do that for free. I don't have the time to do that. I, I really didn't, so it was like, well, that's not going to work. So... As you inquire with things like reserve sheriffs and things like that, there are programs like I described, and there's programs like I was looking for, and it all depends on where you land. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that there's people out there that could use your assistance. Uh, don't be afraid to, to found your own small local group, though. In, in some ways, there's a lot of uh, benefit to having local autonomy as a group and not being have responsible back to a mothership and being able to directly address things in your community. So maybe if you don't find uh, the type of service you're looking to provide there in an existing group, sh just create one. And you say, how do I find people? Be the one. Be the one and the others will follow. Stand up and start acting. If you decide that you know there's something in this community that needs to be done, Like you find a, an, a public space uh, that needs to be painted and you just show up and start painting it, you might be surprised when people start asking you why you're painting it. Now be careful because there's places where that would be considered vandalism. And you know, talk to the people that own the structures. I'd like to volunteer. I'll supply the materials and I'll supply the labor and I'm going to take care of this for you. And it, it could be fixing a park bench. I don't know. Whatever it is. You might be surprised at how many people ask you why you're doing that if you're not dressed like somebody that you would expect to be doing that. And you might tell them, I just think it needs to be done. You want to help. You, you, you might be surprised at how things coalesce around a leader. So that's kind of the conclusion that I want to have for you guys today when it comes to serving your country. This nation 
is drastically in search of leadership at all levels. The failure of leadership in this country is not one of our politicians. It's our failure. We have failed to lead. We have failed to be leaders in our lives. We have failed to be leaders in our homes. We have failed at the individual level to be leaders. And that's why every time there's any kind of tragedy or disaster, even when there's no heroes, there's a manhunt to find somebody to hold up as a hero. Because America is, is hungry for heroes, but we're hungry for heroes in the absence of leadership. When you have true leadership, that yearning to have heroes that you can look up to that are something spectacular and amazing goes away because it's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. It's not real. It never is real. Every human being is put into situations at times where they have to make a decision to preserve their own life or to try to save the life of another. And the vast majority of people in that predicament actually will, if they believe there's any chance of success, Take a risk to help another person. It happens every single day. We, we, we grab onto it. We cling to it like scared little children because we failed as leaders. You want to serve your country. This isn't just the caller now. I'm talking to every one of you. Stand up and lead something. Be in charge of something. Be first to do something. Take command. Take control. Even if it's not at the community level. Stand men, stand up in your home and lead your family. If you're not leading your family men, you're not worthy of them. Okay? I've had men, one guy wrote me when I did a show on this and said, my wife's the stronger person. She's the leader of the family. My response is bullshit. You have a role as a man. And it's to lead your family. That doesn't mean to lead your family so that your wife is your subject. It's servant leadership, men. When you lead your family, you lead as the lowest among them in the stand that you will give up whatever you have to so that they can come first. That's servant leadership. If you want to serve your community, you want to serve your nation, you want to serve your state, your neighborhood, start in your home and be a leader in your home and then take what you learn about leadership into your community. And if there's no place out there for you to go step into a leadership role, make one. That is the highest level of service you can give to anyone, is to step up and lead and do so with honor and dignity and courage. Because it takes courage to lead because you're visible, but it's worth every bit of it. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Jason from North Dakota. I have a question for Stephen Harris. Mr. Harris, I'm wondering what would be the most ideal setup for a remote uh, power plant for a small community? I plan to start a small permaculture-based business with four other families in eastern Washington in the near future. We will most likely not have access to the main power grid. I'm not familiar enough with calculating loads to give you any numbers regarding power consumption, but the setup would look like this. Uh, four homes, roughly 1,500 square feet, a large shop, about 10 small guest cabins. And what I'm imagining right now is a large diesel generator and some form of power storage. If you were planning a venture such as this, uh, what would your power plant look like? Uh, looking forward to your response, and thank you for all that you do for the TSP community. Well, I thought this was a great one for Stephen Harris, and I had to even have a conversation with him about 
how you would close the loop, so to speak, to make sure that if you're making power for a permaculture community, that you're doing it the permaculture way. And I think Steve learned a lot about permaculture, and he came up with an amazing answer. So let's listen to that now. Wow. That's really quite a project you've undertaken, and it's going to be a big one. And part of the hub of this project is going to be your power system to one, power the tools you're going to need to build all this. I don't think you're going to do it with hand saws and wooden pins like the Amish do. So the first best answer is from All Power Labs, A-L-L-P-O-W-E-R-L-A-B-S.com. You're going to find the power pallet. This is a wood gasifier on a pallet, 40 by 48 inches. It's computer controlled, has the hopper, the gasifier, and everything all included in it. And on the pallet is the generator. You literally, all you have to do is put the fuel in and start the thing up. And it'll start making power from you, from, for you off of wood scraps. I don't know what type of wood you have available around you, but I'm pretty sure you'll be able to either turn it into a form you can use or you'll be able to find it in the right form. So this is number one, the power pallet. It's $17,000 for a 10 kilowatt power pallet. It's $27,000 for a 20 kilowatt power pallet. And that's mean nominal kilowatts out. That's not max kilowatts out. Uh, it can actually go a little bit higher than that, depending upon the fuel you're putting in. If you're putting in uh, a fuel that is oil-rich, like nuts or nutshells and stuff like that, it can go a lot higher. In fact, if you're putting in wood chips and such, you could actually mix in, mix in used motor oil with the wood chips and boost your gasification output. I mean, it's extremely flexible with what you can do. So that is the biogas portion. I did the economics of this on one of the Jack shows, and it's like five to eight times cheaper than solar panels because it runs all day and runs all night and runs off of fuel that is made by the sun that literally falls off the trees. So there is great economics for you right there. Now, on your diesel generator... I would still look at putting the diesel generator in there. It might not have to be as big as the one that you were considering, but uh, first of all, you can just wheel in the diesel generator and and turn it on, and you can start building things right then and there instantly. But I'd look at running it off of straight vegetable oil, and because you guys are doing permaculture, I'm sure you'll be able to acquire uh, used fry oil someplace in the nearest town, and they'll probably be happy to give it to you. You can then use the documented methods on the web to clean up the vegetable oil and to run the generator on it. You're going to have to have a huge battery bank as well. I mean the 400-pound individual 2-volt cells like the Rolls-Surette batteries. You're going to want to have that. And the right way to do this eventually is to use Xantrex inverters. They have a whole line of inverters that talk to each other. So my house can pull power from your house or the generator or the batteries as needed or I can give back power. It's a neat system. You're actually forming your own little microgrid. Just keep in mind, these aren't going to be the inexpensive inverters. These are going to be the inverters for each location that chart cost between a thousand and two thousand dollars a piece. This is, you know, the high end stuff that you use in a renewable energy system. So, uh, finally, I would put some solar up. As I say, solar power is expensive, but having no power is even more expensive. So, if you don't have time to feed the gasifier wood, uh, which you have to do from one to four times a day, depending upon how much energy you're using, you'll have the diesel generator or diesel straight veg oil, 
and you'll have the battery bank for run silent, run deep, and you'll have the solar panels to put power into the system uh, when the sun is shining, so you might not have to run the other stuff. There might just be days you're not being power hungry, and the solar will provide you with enough backup energy to run your lights, your radios, TV, satellite dish. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, you guys are permaculture. Um, so anyways, it'll provide you with enough power to do the small things that you need to do around uh, the, the farm. And I think what you guys are doing is a great plan. Please keep me in the loop and let me know what you're doing and email me, and I'll help you along the power road as much as I can. But before I go, I want to thank everyone out there for the incredible support, comments, emails, feedback, and everything I got from you on the Battery Show on TSP and the Battery Videos. The Battery Show and the Battery Video has been an incredible hit, and all of you guys have made every minute I put into its work (laughs) over five plus weeks 110% every moment of it. I have People out there who listen to the TSP show on day one, watched the video on the second day, and on the third day they went out and got the parts and made the home battery bank, and then they sent me photographs of it. I even had a guy in Nevada in a blackout because of a big storm lose his power, drive to Walmart that had power, and then get everything, take it home, and he had lights and TV and radio because of the battery bank TSP show. Thanks to all of you. I think the back-to-back battery shows were the best shows I ever did on TSP. And thanks to Jack Spierko for asking me to do this wonderful project. If you've not heard the two Battery Bank shows, you can find the the TSP shows at www.battery1234.com, and they will play instantly on your phone or your computer with no download needed. At the same location, I also have a video you can purchase. It's four and a half hours long. It details in video everything I told you about in the three hours of the TSP show. The video was $24.95 for the month of December. It's now back up to its normal $34.95 price. But if you are part of Jack Spearco's, the Survival Podcast Membership Support Brigade, you can still get the video for $24.95 plus 15% off. And in my area of the MSB website, there is a special link to get the video at $24.95 and there is a discount code there to get 15% off. And that's 15% off anything on all of my websites. So just on the video alone, that's an instant savings of $13.75 on your membership support brigade fee. Again, thank you to everyone. You are the best, most incredible audience, the most incredible community on the Internet. All of my past shows are at www.solar1234.com, and the battery stuff is on battery1234.com. Because of you guys, Solar1234 got a bit crowded, so I had to separate them out. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel. Please call in with some more questions, and I'll talk to you guys later. Told you it was a great answer, and uh, again, uh, I talked to Steve about doing that, keeping that price down for MSB members, so that's now another uh, MSB benefit. Those of you who were not here, new listeners, uh, at the time that Steve did the shows on Battery Power, you can look those up at battery1234.com. But uh, it was a phenomenal job that he did on building backup battery systems and uh, now uh, yet another benefit of the MSB. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take the next call. Hi, Jack. If a guy's going to have about a thousand dollars stashed at home just in case of emergency, what do you think about having a whole bunch of that in quarters? 
I mean, excuse me, in nickels. Nickels are supposed to go up in price. Uh, you're going to have the money anyway. Why not just have it in nickels, say $500 worth of nickels? Thanks. Bye. Okay, this is uh, one of those things that got started by a lot of people in the survival community that wanted to have something to talk about and didn't really think it through, and we should probably put it to bed and put it to bed for good. The reason that there's intrinsic value in a nickel is because a nickel is a jacketed piece of copper. There's a bunch of copper inside a nickel. That copper is actually pretty complex to try to get out of that nickel. It would certainly require destroying the coin, and it, it's coated in this, this nickel alloy. So it would be fairly energy-intensive to remove that copper, and copper uh, is a, a monetary metal with a long history of monetary use. Uh, in fact, you know, if you actually do the math and you figure out what a penny in 1850 was, how big it was, And, and what a, a silver dollar was, and you had a hundred pennies, you had actually more value in the copper than the, the ounce of silver at the time. So there was actually an intrinsic worth there that was commensurate with the value of the metal. So it's not like we, you know, poo-poo copper. I wouldn't, you know, recommend that you make copper, uh, part of, of what we do with the, the AOCS mint, right? Um, don't think you should be storing a hundred pounds of it under your bed or anything, but it's a, it's a good thing to have, and in a barter economy, it would be a good way to make change. It's the primary reason AOCS brought it in, and they're cool. But in a nickel, I, I wouldn't do that. Let me talk about it from the standpoint of just practicality and feasibility. If you have $500 worth of nickels, and we're in a typical situation where you need cash, like uh, the electricity's down, but some of the stores are open taking cash, they're not going to be real hip on, you know, you go in there and buy $25 worth of food and hand them a bunch of rolls of nickels. Um, it, it's heavy, it's bulky, it doesn't transport well, it doesn't exchange well. We have nickels for making change. We don't have them for buying stuff. The, the days of the five and ten cent store are gone. We use dollars now the way people use nickels in the 1920s, for instance. So we need to be honest about that. So I would not recommend it. Um, interestingly enough, this all started back when copper was well into the $4 a pound range. And at that time, a nickel was worth six and a half cents in melt value. It was worth more melted than it was as a nickel. That's when people discovered that and people that liked to blog about it decided this would be a good idea to tell everybody, hey, go buy rolls of nickels and stick them in your house. The good news is it's U.S. currency. You really can't get hurt doing it. It's not that big of a deal. But right now, a nickel's worth, well, a nickel. It's actually worth 5.1 cents. So you get one-tenth of a cent increased value, in the, and there's no way the energy extraction exchange works out to where you'll get that tenth of a cent out of it. Um, you're actually, if you wanted to store something for the purpose of holding copper and holding U.S. currency at the same time, you'd be better off getting pennies that are pre-82 pennies, Uh, the melt value of a 1980 penny right now is two cents. They're worth exactly twice as much as they are. And uh, there's even little machines people have built that separate them out because the pennies after 82 were made out of zinc. Uh, and they weigh a little bit less. 
So you can sort them out that way. And actually, as long as I'm telling you that, I might as well tell you, in 1982, about half the pennies were old-style pennies and half the pennies were new-style pennies. They looked the same, but one is, is, is 95% copper. I believe it's 95% copper. And uh, the, uh, the, the jacket of the uh, new pennies is over zinc. So uh, if you wanted to store money... Uh, in the form of copper, uh, the best bang for your buck right now would be pre-82 pennies. You can even buy them sorted out on eBay. Uh, but we actually do that for fun. It's just kind of a fun thing. We'll go buy a box of pennies uh, at the bank. We'll sort through them. We'll go buy another box of pennies at the bank. We'll sort through them. We'll take them back to the bank, and then we'll get money, and then we'll buy another box of pennies. And we, when we started doing it, we were finding maybe 30 35% of the pennies were pre-82s. I haven't done it for a while, but the last time I did it, I only got like a 15-20% range of uh, pre-82. So people are doing it. They are being pulled out of circulation like crazy, uh, and there is an intrinsic value there that's uh, at, at, you know, at, at copper being 363 a pound, which it is today, a 100% increase in value in the intrinsic value of a penny. So if I was going to do it with anything, it would be pennies, but a, I'm not going to really count whatever pennies we have rolled up like that as part of my cash on hand. I really don't. It's just a little novelty thing that's fun. And it's fun to do with, like, you know, when our niece comes over. It's kind of cool. We'll talk about the dates and what happened. And it's an interesting little numismatic activity. Let's take another call. Jack, this is Josh in Oregon. My question pertains to uh, home remedies for headaches and even colds or really anything. I recently got sick this week, and it's nothing big, but it got me thinking about what if I didn't have you know, Tylenol and all these things that I depend on. Um, so I love the show. Please keep it up and uh, look forward to hearing your comment. You know, what I might do is I might do an entire show on a whole bunch of different, you know, recipes, so to speak, for home remedies. And there's definitely some utility and value in that. There's, you know, an upset stomach, a cup of peppermint tea is, is just a great way to settle down an upset stomach. It, it works wonders. If you're having trouble sleeping, chamomile tea, uh, especially chamomile tea with a little bit of natural honey, it's a great way to settle down at the end of the day and, and, and get some sleep. Uh, you, you put a little bit of milk in that and you get the, the somewhat sedative effect of warm milk going along with it. I don't, I don't like a lot of milk and tea, but it, it does it does work. Uh, and there's tremendous numbers of things like that. If you have uh, a wound that needs something drawn out of it, like it's an infected wound, uh, some beeswax uh, made into an ointment mixed up with like calendula and mullein will draw Uh, like crazy draw out infection. There's there's tons of ways to do things like that, but I think what we have to be careful of when we start going into the world of herbology is that we're not doing what I just call herbal replacement therapy. So um, I have, let's say, uh, a, a capsule that contains white willow bark, which is where aspirin comes from, and uh, turmeric, which is a natural anti-inflammatory. And when I have a headache now, instead I take uh, the turmeric uh, and willow bark versus an aspirin. There's nothing really wrong with that, but let me explain what a headache is and a headache is not. A headache is something imbalanced in your body that's causing blood vessel constriction or some other reason causing pain in your head. Uh, it is not a deficiency in aspirin, and it's not a deficiency in turmeric and willow bark. 
So there's an underlying root cause of the problem that needs to be addressed. And if we want to really take care of our bodies and be healthy in the absence of modern medicine and drugs, and by choice for me, I haven't taken uh, a prescription medication and I would say 15 years, at least, at least 15 years. And my use of things like Tylenol, Motrin, and things like that are very, very infrequent. If I have a, like, I got a pounding headache, there's no reason to sit there with it. If popping a couple Motrin makes it go away, fine. But if you're taking Motrin several times a week, you're ruining your kidneys and your liver, right? So we got to figure out what's causing the headache, what's causing me to have anxiety, you know, or depression. People that are depressed, you know, if you take a, a good dose of St. John's Ward, it has a mood enhancing effect. It absolutely works. It's been proven in clinical trials to work better than some antidepressants with no side effects. But then why are you depressed? Right? Because the, the whole psychotrophic drug industry is the biggest load of bullshit ever sold to the American people. I, I really want you guys to do me a favor over the weekend, or maybe next week, because there's definitely going to be some days with no show next week, okay? Uh, I really love you to go to YouTube and look up a documentary on psychotrophic drugs called Making a Killing. I'll put a link in today's show notes. It's over an hour long. The full version is available on YouTube. Uh, it's It's shocking when you learn the real history of, of drugs in America, specifically the psychotrophic drugs. But back to my point, there's a reason for the depression. There's a reason. So, uh, uh, like to me, a legitimate use is that drawing salve. You've cut yourself. We know why the problem's there, right? It's not an underlying condition that made a wound on your hand. It was when you slipped when you were turning a wrench and raked it across the jagged edge of the, 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 the hood of your truck, the, so that acute condition, that's, that's the best thing in the world to be doing a responsive medicine to. I, I am much more a fan of proactive medicine. So I don't drink chamomile tea to go to sleep. I drink chamomile tea all the time because I like it. And I'm constantly, you know, getting the effects of it. Um, most of our culinary herbs, oregano, basil, thyme, sage, are full of antivirals and antibacterials and uh, antioxidants and, and a million other positive aspects that these herbs provide to us. And we can make a concentrated uh, version of basil and basically essential oil derived from basil. And that is a very good thing to use as a topical uh, antiseptic. And it smells wonderful too. But, but... If you're eating fresh basil a couple times a week, you're getting all of those effects in this therapeutic mindset. So I think the right way to look at herbal remedies, home remedies, and things like that are to yeah have the ideas and knowledge to develop something for acute responses when necessary. But it's a much better approach to always be tonifying the body with the freshest natural herbs and food and seasonings and spices and the, and the omission of everything that says high fructose corn syrup on it. If it says high fructose corn syrup on it or corn sugar, they try to change it, don't eat it. It's GMO. It's laced with uh, toxins like glyphosate uh, and atrazine, and, and it's terrible for you on top of all of that. It actually, fructose unlike glucose, actually causes a, 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 a psychotrophic action in the mind that increases your appetite and makes you eat more. 
So not only did all the food industry get a windfall in saving money by using subsidized corn as a sweetener instead of cane sugar, all of a sudden people ate more food. So that was a double win for them. Stop playing that game. If you want to be healthy, you've got to start putting the healthiest food and things into your body on a daily basis. And a lot of the underlying conditions will take a while to correct themselves, but you'll find yourself losing weight. You'll find yourself eating less. You'll find yourself exercising more. You'll find yourself not getting ill. Uh, when everybody else is. Because the body is designed to be healthy. We've corrupted it with all the crap that we expose it to. So get that out and start learning about herbs and things like that by using them daily as this gentle therapy instead of acute response therapy. But yeah, I'll try to put together a show where I get more into like, you know, 20 specific home remedies and what they're for and how they work and how to make them. That sounds like a great idea. Let's take another call. Hey, this is a question for Jack. Jack, is it ridiculous to worry about trying to buy ammo online? Um, I'm trying to get just some 22s and Walmart and everywhere apparently seems to be constantly sold out. But I have this possibly silly fear of uh, ordering stuff online. What do you think? I, I don't want to say you're silly, but you, you kind of are. Um it, I, what, what is the fear that if you buy ammo online that people will know you bought ammo? Um, if you've ever bought a gun in your life and filled out a form, then, you know, there's just as much potential for someone to know that you're armed from that as there is from buying ammo. If you're a member of the NRA, I mean, it's pretty obvious. And there's, you know, and are you ashamed to be a gun owner? I'm certainly not. Uh, you know, Mulan LeBay, baby, you, you bring it on, come and take them and you better be prepared when you do. Um, so, I, you know, I have a sponsor that sells ammo online. I buy ammo online all the time. I I just don't see the problem with it. I don't see the big hairy deal with it. You're buying a product like any other product. I mean, you're not buying C4 or something. You know, it's it, it's not like you're buying... Uh, it, it would be much less safe, let's say, to order a gallon of kerosene through the mail. Uh, ammo is extremely stable, more stable than any kind of a liquid uh, uh, propellant uh, uh, like like kerosene or diesel. Now, that's why you can't do that, right? But you, there's no problem with shipping ammo in the mail. So I just don't see the problem. I wouldn't worry about it. And the bad news is right now even that ain't real easy. Stuff is sold out like crazy. Um, I'll tell you what, for all of Obama's talk about gun control, that man has sold more magazines, more guns, and more ammunition than any president in the history of the United States. Now, I hope he keeps talking but doesn't able to get anything done because it'll keep going. I do want to tell you guys I am making a prediction today on what Obama's going to do with executive uh, action. Uh, he has threatened to do something. Something, we've got to do something. I'm going to act. I'll use all the power of this office, which means executive order. And uh, Joe Biden met with some gun rights advocates and some other concerned groups about uh, that issue recently, including with the NRA. And the NRA left basically saying, oh, no, 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 no. We're, we're fighting this tooth and nail. Um, but the president has to be very careful when he uses an executive order and to do something that would be considered counter to the Constitution and avoids legislative process. It's not like it's risk-free. Um, it, it could damage him 
politically, it could definitely be overturned. Uh, if it's severe enough, it could result in legitimately result in his impeachment for taking an unconstitutional action. And there's some of us that are just saying, if it's something like turn your guns in, you're basically declaring war on your citizens if you if you try that. And so the, the reach will be moderate, if at all. And this is the one I think that he'll do. And I think that if he does this, it will be almost impossible to challenge. And I don't think there's enough votes in uh, the Congress to overturn it. And I think it will be largely supported by the, 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 the population, many of whom will not understand what it means. Closing the gun show loophole. I think it's very probable that within the next 30 days, Barack Obama will come out with an executive order That's, that bans the private sale of firearms. This says if you, if you, Tom, want to sell your gun to your buddy Joe, you can do that. There's no problem. Go down to a gun shop and have the same uh, FFL licensed dealer uh, do the transfer that you would if you bought it from the store directly. And I think that many people, including many pro-gun people, will look at that and go, that seems reasonable. That's why it's safe, but it looks like bold action. I doubt he'll even try a magazine ban, uh, you know, to say limit capacity of magazines. I think that's too risky. The reason I'm saying this is what he'll do is certainly not because I want it done. It's because I look at all the things that could be done. I look at those with the most popular support and the lowest risk that give him a political win, and that's the answer I get every time I run the scenarios in my head, every single time. And I don't think we'll be able to fight it. I don't think there'll be any going back from that one I think it will close the window on private firearm sales forever and what's the problem with that is it gives the government greater control and with all the pomp and circumstances he'll say now I've acted I've done what I believe needed to be done within the, 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 and within the powers vested in me as president. I do not feel I've overstepped my reach, but I do not feel that we have gone far enough and now I'm calling on Congress to act And do the rest of the work. And who knows what they'll do. But I think that's what's coming. So you heard it here first. Uh, let's take one last call and wrap up today. Mr. Spierko, it is an honor to have you listen to my question. I am curious if you have ever discussed a resource-based economy on the show. Everyone seems stuck in this rut of making money, which is a creation, of course. Not to mention the false social stratification that comes from its use. Technology has already forced the majority into service-type servitude. Thus, less and less of us actually need to be working, opening up more time for individual passionate exploration. Zero doubt, money holds us down, not up. Some have said this is a New World Order idea set in such. Then why don't we take it back, is a question. Why not discuss this idea just as with permaculture, being true to permanent culture, of course. We need a change in mind after what we have fails, and it seems the elimination of money would clean up large amounts of the problems we face today. I do not dare imagine that bringing something like this to fruition after it collapsed would be feasible without a bridge, but I assume you would agree we have enough resources, at least for today, to build a global, permanent human civilization. Please don't say this is a utopian idea. Nothing can make anything perfect. I can't say enough how much I love you, brother. Thank you for everything that you do. Bye. Be great if it could work. I just don't think it can. I don't know that it can ever work. 
um, for maybe a lot of folks don't even know what a resource-based economy is. I, I actually like the sound of it. I think it would be great to have a resource-based economy, uh, but I would build a resource-based economy entirely different than what people mean when they say it. In a resource-based economy, all resources would be considered available to anybody with no money, no credit, no debt. If you want something, you just go take it as long as it's available, you can have it. Um, it's like communism meets heaven. It's, it's the, actually the, the dream of communism that eventually technology would call Marx's original concept was you had to have all this totalitarianism early on to get everybody in line. But once you had everybody in line and automation and technology came up, eventually everything would just be made by machines and nobody would have to work anymore or people would only do the work that they love and it would be great. Um, I don't think it's a, it, it's completely out of the question, but I think the way that you, when you look at it that way, it just can't work. Because human beings are not going to just play by the rules because they play by the rules. And when you start telling me that everybody has the option to have anything, that means that some of it's going to be taken from me. It always results in the same thing. This is an idea that sounds good on paper, but never passes the realistic uh, litmus test. Because if there's no incentive um, to work then the laziest take the most. And it, we, every time anything like this has been tried in history, it's been shown to be the case. And then that's where the totalitarianism, socialism, and communism comes from. Well, then we'll force them to work. And then the free society is dead, and you might as well be George Orwell 1984, and the utopia becomes a hell. But what is somewhere of a, a meeting in between? The problem that we have today is that wealth is accumulated by people that do very little for it because money is produced through basically voodoo. They just make money. There's nothing behind the money to give it value. The way I would build something you would call a resource-based economy would not be to get rid of money, but would be to back the money with the resources so that the nation's currency would be based on the land of the nation, the output of the nation, the resources of the nation, so that the money would actually have to have something behind it again. It's much better than a gold standard because a gold standard is inflexible. It doesn't truly reflect the wealth of a nation. Our nation is worth far more because we can grow a lot of food than it is because we have a lot of yellow mellow in the ground. There's just no doubt about that. There, the whole purpose of the gold is to have an economy so that people can spend money and feed themselves. Now, can we move to a society eventually where there's a less of a need for money, where many things are abundant? Yeah, and permaculture is a way we can do that. There'd be a lot less hungry people if there was food everywhere. If there was, if we plant, if all our public spaces were planted with things that were productive, and that was there for the taking, that that starts to head in that direction, but. No, I don't think you can make that work. I know that it sounds great. It's how Star Trek's, you know, society supposedly works and all. And, and maybe one day humans can evolve to that level. But the bridge is a very, very, very long, multi-century bridge if you're ever going to get to that. The reality is it's not that money that holds us back. It's financial systems that control the money that hold us back. Money is actually the most liberating thing ever created by mankind. 
And to understand this, we have to understand why money was created in the first place. So let's go back to the days before money, when there was no money. So we're walking along, me and you and a couple other guys. We're in our own little troop, our own little band. And uh, we are foragers, and we have lots of dried berries and nuts and seeds and stuff like that, more than we need to survive, and that's our main food source. And we come across another pack of, of wanderers, and once we realize we're no threat to each other, we communicate as best we can, and we do what humans have always done when they when one man meets band meets another, uh, is what do you got, and here's what I got, and do you want to trade? This is a, a basic human characteristic. It happens all the time. Give some kids some baseball cards and watch what happens. It does it all by itself. You don't have to teach them. So I show you this bag of nuts and seeds and all, and you show me this bag of dried meat because you hunt, and we come to an agreement that the meat's a little more valuable because it's a little harder to come by, and we come to a, a size arrangement, and we, we shake hands or, or bump fists or whatever we did in that period of time, and we make an exchange of goods and services. And that works out great. So my band is forever restricted to foraging because that's the only thing that we produce of value and your band is forever you know chasing the herds because that's your primary value but here's how the money starts to evolve out of it you need to have a method to bring these animals down so you have all of your hunters learn how to make spear points adequate spear points but some people are artists just in their heart it's what they are So some of your members may make the best spear points. That would be great if they could specialize and just be spear point makers because they love it and they're really good at it, but they have to hunt too because that's the only way your group has value to conduct commerce with other groups. But one day you come across somebody and they go, we got lots of meat, we don't need any meat. And you dig through your stuff and you find a couple spear points made by your really great spear point maker. And you show them to this other band, and they think, we don't even really need those, but they know they're high quality, and they won't go bad. They won't break down. They'll all, and they'll know that somewhere, someplace, there's another person who will take them as an exchange, and they know there's an intrinsic worth, so they're willing to trade to you now because they know they'll have the ability to trade with somebody later. Money, boom, just got invented. All those ads that say, only gold is money, are full of shit. Money derives its value from the economy that it circulates in. The things that latch money to inflexible systems controlled by a private banking institution or by a government instead of the economy itself, that's what's holding us back. Now, the reason I bring that all up is eventually, you know, in that little world for a while, spear points may have become the money. There could have been spear points handed around a thousand times before they were ever attached and affixed to an actual spear and used for their original intention. Along the way, people started to figure out that certain metals were really attractive and useful and fit the bill for money as well. And we ended up with gold, silver, bronze, copper, all different types of coins as money. As that happened, along with the development of agriculture... It actually freed people. It did not enslave them. Now, it's a power. So any power can be wielded by somebody to oppress another. So plenty of power has been wielded to oppress and enslave mankind with money. But money's not the problem. 
Okay? No more than it's the gun that's the problem when a bad guy shoots someone. It's the bad guy that's the problem because the good guy uses the same gun to feed his family or to stop a bad guy. Right? So the money's not the problem. It's the use of the money and a manipulative system that makes the money so easy to use that way by those in control. But the way that it frees you is now the person who is a writer, instead of tending fields, can actually write. Because it's a means of exchange to place a value on the creation of his writing. The person that is an artist and a craftsman can stop making spear points and make a statue. Without money, none of that happens. None of that happens. And who decides if the statue is valuable or if the book is valuable? Is it just, this guy has a job, he's a writer, he wrote lots of books so he can take whatever he wants? No, the economy itself, the people who read his work say, this is worthy of my exchange of value. See, this is the problem. People don't understand money. Money isn't the thing exchanged. The thing exchanged is simply a representation of human energy or intrinsic value. Right? It's a symbol for energy. In fact, what made silver and gold so valuable is how much energy had to go into the acquisition of a single ounce. That it was, it, it was, the value of these metals wasn't like, oh gee, they would just all decide it's how rare are they and how much work does it take to refine them and how many hours of human labor were represented, especially 150 years ago, before automation, how many hours of human labor were represented in a silver dollar? That's what gave it its real value. So if you want to move the economy forward, what you have to do is take control of the money away from government and large corporations and let the economy rectify itself and let people assign value of things themselves and open it up so that people are free to use whatever they choose to as currency. And you do that, maybe we can get somewhere. But the, the classical notion of a resource-based economy was just basically needs everybody take whatever you want whenever you want it. Uh, that's a lot more like anarchy in the bad way than it is like the utopia you're promised. And then what you get is those in charge that say the only way this can work is that we have to tell you how much you can have. And, and that means that Unlike what we have today where you can actually, even with the flaws, if I want more, I can work harder and earn it. No matter how hard I work, I only get my peace that you decided for me. That's not liberty. That's not freedom. And don't look for me to back it. And with that, folks, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.